0: Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 87, Jamie in a Storm of Swords, Chapter 8. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as LizaNarbor on Twitter or LizaNarborGold.com.
1: And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, on the Master Monthly podcast, maybe as Arithmetric on Twitter. But now I am just an Animal Crossing Twitter account. Oh my god. <sighs>
0: Me too. Yeah. Me too. I've heard some whispers that there might be Animal Crossing content in the future. I don't know. (laughs) In the present. (laughs) There was an hour of Animal Crossing content that went unrecorded before this episode, but you, the listener, don't know that. At all, but you should know that I'm very excited about this Jamie chapter. I'm really excited. This chapter is something that is so simple that I think nobody realizes is a powerhouse. Oh, I'm excited.
1: Yeah, and as you and I were discussing, it's very interesting that up until now, right, we don't have Jamie interacting with Tyrion and continues in this chapter, even though Tyrion is the backdrop to which all of this is happening, right? He's like the specter hanging over this chapter.
0: Yeah, I feel really interested in the direction of this chapter after rereading it with the idea of no Tyrion because Jamie's investigating Tyrion on his own terms in this chapter and I, I think that's something that's less explored. I think there's a lot of stuff in this chapter that's very less explored by people in the fandom and I want to talk about it at full extent. I think that's mm-hmm. going to be fun. I'm very, very pumped and I'm also excited... For next week, Eliana, do you know what next week is?
1: Well, I found out today. <laughs>
0: so, th- <laughs> Chloe, tell us what next week is. Well, it's actually it's super not exciting. Ice and FireCon because Ice and FireCon was postponed until Halloween weekend this year due to the old COVID nineteen. However, we are doing some digital content. I hear for Ice and FireCon next weekend. And I am going to be a part of it for two different things happening. There's three things I'm doing. There's a uh, getting. There's a drinking with the small council oh, yeah. thing, or like a hangout with small council thing on Thursday night. There is Friday night four twenty-five. There's a uh, Westeros and American musical live stream where people are just gonna kind of do a live mystery science theater kind of thing of just going through every song in the musical and commentating and we'll have revolving cast members in and out it's gonna be really fun uh, if you guys haven't seen that it's a Hamilton parody musical Game of Thrones covering uh season slash books one through three to four ish ish barely four uh, it cuts off there really fun though really fun it's like
1: Only Only one legal legal notice. notice.
0: Only one cease and desist on one of the songs I singed. Uh, So after that, though, the one I'm most excited for, which is hard to say because I'm excited for all of it, is hanging out with Haley from The Manimals. She's the lead singer of The Manimals. Uh, They did an album called Seven, which is a Game of Thrones concept album. Every song is about a character. I love all of them. She has a podcast called Drinking Game of Thrones Brooklyn, it's about Game of Thrones, or was, uh, I guess, until we get the House of the Dragon, the Blood of the Dragon, whatever the shit-ass show we're all going to watch and complain about It's called. Uh, until that show comes out, <laughs> she's she's not doing new content, I don't think, except for this. We are going to talk about Season 8 of Game of Thrones. It's kind of like a every couple of years thing for us now. i going to get drunk on the internet talk about Season 8, so you can't miss it. I'll be reprising my dead... X side project, Drunk a Song of Ice and Fire history for that, so can't wait. Can't wait.
1: It doesn't have to be history, you know, we can. We I can think that all back. the time, but it's like here I am with you. I can't. I'm
0: stuck in the middle with you. I'm so sorry. You wifed this me.
1: To you. you wifed me.
0: One of our favorite people one of our friends Rachel Rachel Gomes sent us an email about Jamie 6 and you know I, I Eliana's usually our Shakespearean one right like Eliana you grasp those themes quicker than I do love a good Shakespeare but it's just not my first language right or my second it's like my third but <laughs> we talked about the Taming of the Shrew during the Bear Pit episode, I think it was, right? Or maybe it was last. I don't know. Whatever episode it was, we recently talked about Taming of the Shrew in regards to Cersei and Brienne and Jamie, Just kind of some fun parallels. And Rachel sent us some stuff about the Scottish play. It's important that you all know that I will not say Oh, it. that's right. I, I forgot. Will not say you it. don't say I it. it. I was in it. How could say I say it. it? I was in it. I was
1: well, so you know the fact that you don't say it is probably why you get two bottles of vodka and yeah. I don't. Because I'm a good person. And so you're not. I will read aloud. <laughs> I won't read aloud this email, and I I disagree with it. You not being fluent. And that was like a really great call as you were talking about the Taming of the Shrew, and you've definitely brought up other things before oh, in regards to Shakespeare. But anyways, Rachel Gomes Gomez unsure says. Anyways, I have some thoughts about. Jamie 6. I listened to both your episode and History of Westeros' episodes about this chapter at about the same time, so Jamie's fever dream has been on my mind. As a high school English teacher, I've taught Macbeth for years. I said it! After listening to both your pods, I, for the first time, found a possible connection between the two. From Jamie's dream, around him stood a dozen tall, dark figures in cowled robes that hid their faces. In their hands were spears. "'Who are you?' he demanded of them. "'What business do you have in casterly rock?' This scene reminded me immediately of Macbeth's second encounter with the three witches, an act four scene one. Witches, show his eyes and grieve his heart, come like shadows so depart, a show of eight kings, the last with a glass in his hand, ghost of Banquo following. Then Macbeth says, thou art too like the spirit of Banquo, down, thy crown does sear mine, eyeballs and thy hair, thou other gold-bound brow is like the first, a third is like the former. Filthy hags, why do you show me this? A fourth, start, eyes. What, will the line stretch out to the crack of doom? Another yet, a seventh, I'll see no more. And yet the eighth appears, who bears a glass, which shows me many more. And some I see, that twofold balls and troubled scepters carry. Horrible sight. Now I see tis true, for the blood-boltered Banquo smiles upon me and points at them for his. Rachel says, When Jamie described seeing the shadowy figures around him, I was reminded of Macbeth seeing a line of kings behind Banquo's ghost. Children and succession are an issue for both Macbeth and Jamie, though for different reasons. I wonder if Jamie is seeing the ghost of the true heirs he could have had, or maybe he's seeing the former lords of Casterly Rock that are waiting for him to prove himself worthy. Rachel talks about how she feels it was an interesting parallel, whether or not it was intentional on George's part. What say you about... Macbeth, chloe (laughs) i'm cursing our podcast with every moment i live i'll remember this uh no i think
0: that's a really 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 apt comparison i see a lot of comparisons with stannis right in this regard um and not as many with jamie i think jamie in comparison to banquo's kind of ghost appearing and falling around. And that is kind of one of those fundamental storytelling aspects in general. You know what I mean? Jamie's very much so haunted by the ghost of his past. We've obviously already lived it and seen it from the Weirwood dream. Uh, it's not the last time we'll live it or see it from him either. I'm excited to see where it goes forward. and I do think it was a good connection. We know that George does pay attention to Shakespeare, whether or not he uses it. Sometimes he uses it in the opposite manner. He said before in So Spake Martins, for example, like Ned and Ashara's relationship, someone asked, Is this like Romeo and Juliet? And he said, No. So sometimes he doesn't use it. Sometimes he goes the opposite direction from things like that. But I also think that some of these tragic characters, especially like House Lannister, Oh god, it's a tragic downfall house, as we've discussed. House Targaryen, Eliana's done amazing work in discussing some of the tragedy and some of this mysticism that kind of surrounds them, and how each of them handles it separately in different times. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with those uh, ghosts, Jamie? What are you going to do?
1: Maybe confront them, hopefully. But yeah, I loved loved this email. I don't think I would have thought to connect these, and thinking of Jamie as a sort of Macbeth figure, especially in the context of the 93 letter, but still playing with that idea, right, of of looking at the past and that succession, right, and especially because Jamie did kill a king, and the 93 letter has him taking the throne. Obviously, Jamie's gone down a different path, but there's definitely some things there, and George has woven in Macbeth, and... Many different ways in his story, whether it's like as sort of Easter eggs, right, with the way that it goes down in Asha Greyjoy's chapter with the branches and the woods moving, and that's sort of George's more subtle take on the Burnham like, Woods moving like versus Tolkien's like magic trees. Yeah. yeah, so sorry, not magic trees, ants. Um, I know it's different. Anyway, but like they're all you know George's even the very structure and and the way that he. Had, approaches things, very much weaving these ideas in, so I think it's such a great catch. We all
0: know the main core of Ace Swaff will always revolve around the heart and conflict with with itself, right? Like Faulkner style, and I think never lose sight of that, especially in Jamie 8. Uh, Jamie 8 is a chapter of a man that's very tired, but (laughs) the Same. Before Jamie 8 came some <laughs> other tired people after Jamie 7, and we missed some things. Let's cover them in our lightning round. In Davos 6, Davos faces Azora High's judgment in freeing an innocent and reads a plea sent from the north.
1: John 8. After surviving two of the Free Folk's attacks, the wall is. John's? Hmm.
0: Arya 12. In dreams,
1: she runs with
0: wolves, but by day, she learns the gift of mercy.
1: Tyrion 9. Tyrion's fate lies in the hands of a viper, but unfortunately, snakes do not have hands nor feet. <laughs> I'm glad
0: that you got to read this one. <laughs> Are you glad that I just changed it entirely? Kind of a little offended. We'll learn to the live. End. So that brings us to Jamie 8. In Jamie 8, A Storm of Swords, Jamie thumbs through the pages of the White Book, wondering what his legacy will be. Will he be known as the Kingslayer? As Golden Hand the Just? And will he be able to preserve Brienne from King's Landing stench? Let's jump in and find out.
1: A white book sat on a white table in a white room. What kind of fucking riddle is this? The white sword tower holds <laughs> the armory in the sleeping cells of Jamie's brothers. I'm sorry, it just sounds like little blue man in the blue house. Turns out I don't know the lyrics. Of See, the I was sorry. thinking uh, and Madeline. Stayed.
0: You know, 12 girls in a line, oh,
1: all in a row. I was very into the Madeline Same. fandom. I, I was. We a stan. Standalone. Uh Jamie had stayed in actually one of these sorts of sleeping cells for 18 years, but this morning, he's moving up to the Lord Commander's apartment at the top floor. We love drawing those parallels between past POVs, right?
0: Uh, we've moved on, of course, from Theon and Jon and all of these characters, but gone but never forgotten in our hearts <laughs> until Wow, And this kind of gives me some strong parallels to Jon acquiring the wall. Right? He, uh, is just given the wall in his last chapter. He's told, hey, the wall's yours. Everyone else is pretty much gone, dead, you know, uh, indisposed. And this is the first time Jamie's taking the Lord Commander's Tower. Only, of course, in the White Sword Tower. The Lord Commander Tower in the north, however, is stone. It catches fire in the White Attack with Oath, flowers, and Jor moves into the King's Tower instead. So John never truly lives in the Lord Commander's Tower, much like Jamie hadn't until now. I thought that was very interesting to think on.
1: Right. It was. It, it's also interesting because like John ends up. He has a slightly different circumstance. Where he's like, man, I got to deal with like Stannis. <laughs> And like f- when he becomes Lord Commander eventually and he's like, You know what, Stannis, you take you take the fancy digs and gives him the the night tower, because like you said, Lord Commander's Tower is kind of a wreck, and then John actually instead and it's both a parallel and not, right? Because Jamie, as we see throughout this chapter, sees all these like Lord Commanders perform as sort of mentors. He's like, Wow, amazing and John doesn't take Lord Commander's Tower but goes into Donald Noy's quarters.
0: Mhm. His mentor. So, Jamie's room has a view of the sea, and on his way to the tower, he thinks, you know, maybe he'll like that. And I thought that was kind of a powerful moment for Jamie's POV, because not only has George given him this voice, right, by giving him a POV, but this is also kind of the first time Jamie's ever gotten to think about what he might like, right? Like, he's never Mm. had a choice to think, huh? I might like the sea. He's never gotten to think that. This is
1: Jamie looking out and going, hmm,
0: I could like the sea.
1: You're right. I've never thought about that. Jamie's like, the only thing that we know for sure he likes is Cersei and fighting. And he goes where those things tell him to yeah.
0: go. It's sad. It is. He reads through the white book while he's waiting. He thinks about how uncomfortable he is. His sword is on the wrong side. His right hip. And his Kingsguard clothing doesn't fit anymore, either. It's too loose. He'd been spending his days at Tyrion's trial, although he'd gone unnoticed by everyone in the room, even Tyrion. Okay. <laughs> right. oh, Who is he?
1: Maybe it's better to be unnoticed in this time. You know, from one Kingslayer to another, but... Yeah, like, I, I like this line where Jamie thinks he feels as though he's a stranger in his own home, with all of those things going on. Mm-hmm. And again, it the backdrop is Tyrion's trial, and I do think that makes it very meaningful, because truthfully, right now, I think both brothers kind of feel like I'm a stranger to my family and my own home. One, uh, who? Who am I? Who are these people now? The other, they're trying <laughs> to have me executed. Interesting. And... Jamie, for the most part, has actually almost always felt welcome, except for the part yes. where last chapter, he really let down his dad for the first time ever. He did before, right? But time was like, that, whatever, we can reverse it. Turns out he finds out, oh, Jamie doesn't want to. But anyways, you have both brother- brothers feeling pushed out right now. And then, of course, like the clothes not fitting right. I mean, you know, going back again to Ned and King's Landing, we don't really need to have a whole fashion hour for this. We can have a fashion in it. It speaks for itself.
0: Yeah, it absolutely speaks for itself. I'm different. Uh, (laughs) We have this passage. I thought it was kind of Mm -hmm. powerful. His son was dead. His father had disowned him and his sister. She had not allowed him to be alone with her once after the first day in the royal sept where Joffrey lay amongst the candles. That's a lot to think about. Everything just kind of fell away at once. This is a man that's
1: come back from war. He's been through hell and back, and he came back to a whole world changed. Yeah, he came back. It's all changed. It's uh, He's isolated, but you know, it kind of lends credence to some of the things you we were talking about between that interaction between him and Cersei last chapter, mm-hmm. but also like Cersei, is it that she just didn't see a need for him anymore also as well? Like, it's also mm-hmm. wrapped up Anyway.
0: Yeah, and we're definitely going to get into some of Cersei's machinations and manipulations as we greet some of his new Kingsguard members, right, that he didn't know before. But first, we survey the room. White hangings and shields and two cross swords adorn the hearth, and the chair at his table is an old black oak with thin leather cushions. And I love that the wood was described here. I always think it's important when George describes what the wood is, not important, but just pay attention. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, he took the time, so we should take the time. So we're gonna, I do want you to know that when we were first writing out this episode and discussing what kind of themes were happening with this, I took the liberty of finding every single mention of oak and iron in A Song of Ice and Fire. Really? And what percentage was dedicated to what POVs. I haven't shared it with you. I should. Um, it's a spreadsheet. There's two pages. There's one that has a pivot table. And,
1: There's one that has a pivot table. <laughs>
0: uh, for the most part, it's like Starks and Tyrion that Ooh. have oak and iron in their arcs. And Davos. Which I thought was kind of interesting, just kind of spoke to kind of the environment they were in and what they were about. A lot of oak and iron doors, and the King's Tower, where Stannis gets to stay per John in uh, the North at the Wall, and also where Jor decided to go move his Lord Commandership to after you know, kind of Lord Commander Tower was fucked, is oak and iron doors as well.
1: Interesting. I mean, the iron makes sense, right? Especially when you think of yes. the First Men, but for Tyrion, I mean, that, he needs a lot of protection. Guard yeah. him well. And, you know,
0: Tyrion actually has a lot of mentions of Oak and Iron too, and I think there's gotta be something more there, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So, Jamie reflects on those who have held position of Lord Commander before him, Barristan, Gerald Hightower, Aemon the Dragon Knight, Rhyam Redwine, the Demon of Derry, Duncan the Tall, Pale Griffin, Alan Connington.
1: Yeah, so the first thing that I actually thought was like, holy shit, this is an old-ass chair. It must be very well made, considering that it's oak. Oak must be very, very good. Like, this is a goddamn antique. But also, you know, it speaks once more to Jamie and that idea of legends and songs as he thinks of like, wow, Mm -hmm. all these people have sat in it. And I'm like... Yeah, but, like, how much better are they than you, right? Like, we don't know much about the demon of Derry, but, like, the name doesn't bode super well. Uh, Or Alan Connington, other than, like, I guess he's super pale, right? Imagine if that's your descriptor, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, he is pale. Anyways, but- Well, you have,
0: like, what, the red ronid, and uh, I don't understand how the Conningtons are just, like, a bird of a feather.
1: Yeah, they're like, "You (laughs) you need some sun you got <laughs> some red hair, like all the rest of you, anyways. Don't get your feathers ruffled, John. Oh, your feather fur, anyways. <laughs> yeah, but like we know quite a bit about all these other Kingsguard, and they were also flawed, right? Like, with Jeff from Nauticast, we've discussed quite a bit, like, Barristan in depth, and, like, his faults, and where he fell through when it came to serving Robert and defending mm-hmm. children, and we also spoke about it in Barristan's chapters, right? Uh Gerald Hightower just stood there and was like, "Yeah, I don't fucking know." Like while his queen was abused and listened to it. You see that uh coming through in Jamie's chapter this time. Ryan Redwine, good knight, but turns out he was a shit hand. And Dunk can we find out may not have been a knight at all. Well, we don't find out. That's uh, that's uh, something that people have pointed out after close readings of Duncan Egg, but. Yeah, it, it's interesting that
0: all of these characters are very flawed. And uh, look at Dunk. He may or may not have left his king to die, right? Mm. It's possible. While his king was trying to set off wildfire caches, maybe. Absolutely. Or other sort of caches. I mean,. Dunk was maybe an enabler in some manners and not so much in others, but maybe, you know, you can't yeah. let, like, your child's... Yeah, man. Yeah, Targaryens and prophecy, man. Yeah, um, anyways, it's, so, so... it's
1: so shrouded right now. <laughs> what? It is. No, it is. It is. Uh, will we ever get the other... Sorry, I should not think about this. Happy Stop thoughts. Stop it. Happy don't thoughts. even say it. Don't even say it. <laughs> we I don't need even want you. Kay. I hurt.
0: He wonders how he could land in the line of 20 good men, (laughs) and uh, just kidding, it was six other men-ish, and he surveys the room. When together, the Lord Commander sits at the top of the table with a top like a shield, brothers three to each side, and the legs of the table are carved like stallions. The shield that sits on these carved legs is made of old weirwood, and it makes me wonder when they would have made the shield table, you pointed out this chair has been through a lot, and I'm guessing the table has as well. Um, I love that it's a white Weirwood shield for mm-hmm. the Kingsguard's duties, and I don't know, maybe it's a headcanon now, but if Dunk had it carved, maybe, and brought from Winterfell, I don't know. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Uh, it's, it's like possible. my little headcanon that maybe that's going to be something that we hear of. And or something I love gifted. This- yeah, exactly. Something gifted maybe from... Whoever, Maybe a she-wolf Like of the Winterfell, Statue of right?
1: Liberty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there was something else from Fire and Blood that I thought was really appropriate with all this talk about the White Sword Tower, and it was that if you blink, you would have missed it in the Jaharis and Alysanne stuff. But Princess Sarah Targaryen, when she was 10 years old, sneaks into the White Sword Tower, steals the white cloaks, and dyes them all pink.
1: Sarah Targaryen's, like... One of the best in I stand. all of that. Yeah, same. Yeah. <sighs> she deserved a better dad. <laughs> she said it. Goddamn. He was a great dad to his sons, terrible dad to his daughters. Why do you think that was?
0: Who Who can tell? Whoever knows. No one ever knows these things, you know? The man's an
1: enigma. Anyways, Jamie surveys the white book next. And we have this quote of the Book of the Brothers was its formal name, but more often it was simply called the White Book. Within the White Book was the history of the Kingsguard. Every knight who'd ever served had a page to record his name and deeds for all time. On the top left-hand corner of each page was drawn the shield the man had carried at the time he was chosen, inked in rich colors. Down in the bottom right corner was a shield of the Kingsguard, snow-white, empty, Pure. The upper shields were all different, the lower shields were all the same, and the space between were written the facts of each man's life and service. The heraldic drawings and illuminations were done by septons, sent from the great sept of Baylor three times a year, but it was the duty of the Lord Commander to keep the entries up to date. My duty now. So... This is dumb, but it I it stresses me out when I think that every single person only gets one page. And you're just like at the whims of each person's like individual penmanship like Okay, first of all, what if someone did a lot of stuff and it filled too much of a page? What if they needed a second page, but you've already started someone else's fucking page on that page, right? Because you have to include the other people in the King's Guard. Anyways, also, what if the Lord Commander has awful handwriting? How are you <laughs> going to know what happened in history? I saw this hilarious meme on, like, I don't know, Facebook or Twitter. And someone was like, I asked my doctor cousin or something like what or like pharmacist cousin what this doctor had prescribed it looked like the letter p a straight line and then another like vertical line at the end turns out it said paracetamol like what if the lord commander is like that what if the lord commander has really big handwriting and we kind of address this a little later in the chapter and like it's also interesting to me that's kind of just presumed that whoever becomes lord commander of the kingsguard is going to be literate Especially in the context mm-hmm. of someone like Dunk. And, yep. you know, it reminds me again of like the, the discussion about the false meritocracy of the Night's Watch.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder like, well, and okay, so we know that it was like a totally gilded thing that if you were a second son, you know, if you were the spare and you weren't needed and the heir already was showing good promise of, you know, shooting that sperm up there and bringing out some heirs, you know what I mean? Like if she had birth and hips and you married good and that dowry was already back and forth good and you would gotten all the perks out of the way, I'm just saying like that second son's not needed, right? You just throw it somewhere. Where's a good place where you don't have to pay for it, right? So... Uh, sending, like, a super lordly knightly kid over to the Knight's Watch is a practiced and honored tradition. So, yeah, it probably is presumed that the Kingsguard, like, I mean, think of how much shit Dunk got, likely, as a Kingsguard member. Oh, we know how much shit he got as a Hedge Knight. I can't imagine it'd be any better for the first few years and he got all the way up to Commander. And it does bring the question, like, did he write pages for his men? And... You know, you talk about the handwriting, and we are going to get into that in this episode. There is a quote really soon about handwriting in this, but I would love to see a cute scene with Dunk and Egg teaching him how to read, a la, like, Davos Shireen in the show. I don't know. Be yeah. cute.
1: I can't even remember if, like, Dunk is literate or not. They they don't, I don't remember it um, for sure. But yeah, as you said, like, Second Sons, but also, I mean, we do have a, a track record of a couple of Firstborn sons like Jamie. Mm -hmm. I think Barrison, right, also gave up his lands to become part of the Kingsguard. But his cousin
0: now has his lands.
1: Yeah, the people who had, like, the best training. You know, as Donald Noy points out to John, like, yeah, John, you're fucking great at beating everyone, but also, like, you were literally taught martial arts. So, also, coming back to Kingsguard versus Night's Watch. The book is interesting because the Night's Watch tend to be very anonymous. They're a large order, right? And you kind of just... There are a few that are remembered. A lot of them are quite infamous, like the Night's King. But, you know, as opposed to the Kingsguard, there's so few of them. They all get their own goddamn page, I guess. What if you need more than one page? Anyways, and, like, they're remembered for protecting just, like, one guy in the realm, like, versus the Night's Watch, right? They're all expected. Many of them go, and they die nameless. Like, all, all, so many people, and they're protecting everyone. Anyway. Jamie
0: thinks that he would need to add in some lost brothers, right? That he has not kind of gotten time to add to the White Book. Sir Mandon Moore, Preston Greenfield, Sandra Clegane's brief but bloody experience of the King's Guard, he calls it. And he would start new pages for Balan Swan, Osmond Kettleblack, and Loris Tyrell after he summons a septon to draw their shields, which I'm like, just draw a stupid flower.
1: Get over with. Jamie turns the page to Bearist and Selmie's. It's three wheat stalks on a brown field, and turning the top of it. And Jamie finds, amused and surprised, that Berriston somehow took the time to write his own dismissal before he left.
0: <laughs> it's so
1: top tier petty. But it's amazing. Like, so baller it is so baller what a power move like honestly like i cannot take that away from barristan and i'm sure we've talked about it back then yeah,
0: we've we've read this aloud way before all of his great feats we had an actual really chilling barristan intro yes if you recall where we were all like here are barristan's accomplishments because it is like the most fuck you resume like i did everything here's my dick on the table he squired for Manfred Swan, speaking of Balin Swan, named the Bold at age 10 for appearing as a mystery knight. He was defeated by Duncan Targaryen, the Prince of Dragonflies, slew Melis, the Monstrous in the Nine Penny Kings War, defeated Lormel, Longlance, and Cedric Storm, named Kingsguard at age 23 by Gerald Hightower, played the Bouncer at the Tourney of the Silver Bridge, victor in the melee at Maidenpool defiance of Duskendale heroics that we've talked about. He avenged Gwaine Gaunt and rescued Lady Jane Swan from the Kingswood Brotherhood. He slayed Simon Toyne, defeated the Smiling Knight, defeated the Mystery Knight Black Shield at the Old Town Tourney. He was the sole champion of the tourney at Storm's End. He unseated a bunch of big name characters that you see in the background, right? Bobby B., Oberyn, Leighton Hightower, John Connington, Jason Malister, Uwu if you're Eliana, and Rhaegar. Uh,
1: honestly, it's, that is a lot of big name characters. It's funny that Oberyn was there why well, was right. just there to like, hang out, party. Actually, though, probably. Probably. Probably, like, thank God I was knocked out. Um, he was also wounded in the Battle of the Trident, and then, of course, as we all know, named Lord Commander by Robert. Actually, in fact, when I picked this up, right with wounded in the Battle of the Trident, we're transitioning to the time that Barristan actually starts writing his own entry. Uh, he brought Cersei to her wedding. He led an attack on. Actually, I don't know how to pronounce this. Wick, uh, I I call it Wick. Wick makes sense. I change I change it based on my mood whenever I'm reading it. Yeah. Uh, during Balon's Rebellion, champion of the tourney at King's Landing in his 57th year. I've never had to say it aloud. Um, and he was dismissed at age 21 by King Joffrey <laughs> I. He's like the first and the, I hope the fucking last. Uh, Blannister. <laughs> for reasons of I'm a fucking teenage prick or my mommy and her dad said so also allegedly age and Barris is like unquote. fuck that age shit I'm gonna fight everyone go right and then leave
0: I like that and we get this line after this and this harkens back kind of to what you were saying about the uh, writing style of the Lord Commander and how it could affect uh, the pages which to be fair we don't have a page limit Eliana So it I stresses that- me out I know, but, like, uh, Game of Thrones, the source material for A Song of Ice and Fire, if you recall, they <laughs> showed that you can have several pages, because uh, Barristan's page was, like, 80 pages, rightfully so.
1: It just stresses me out, because, okay, so whenever I start a new notebook, I am a weirdo, and I don't write on the very first page. Sometimes I don't write on the second page, because I'm like, I don't know, what if I write something fucking stupid? At least I'll still, like, have those clean pages, and I can, like, anyways, I start, like, two two to three pages in. <laughs> So
0: the passage goes, the earlier part of Sir Barrison's storied career had been entered by Sir Gerald Hightower in a big forceful hand. Selmy's own smaller and more elegant writing took over the account of his wounding on the trident. I thought this might be interesting that this was written in two hands and Jamie's is already written in two hands. It's written by Gerald Hightower and then his page is written by Barrison Selmy later on. And I kind of wonder if this is foreshadowing that maybe someone with a smaller, more elegant writing style might take over Jamie's account in the end. Uh. no, uh no c- connection to be made here yeah. or anything. They're really, I—it's uh, merely speculation. There's not much, but it did ring out to me. It's something that really just made me go, "Huh, that's interesting." The different handwritings. Yeah, like it makes me wonder about who will live die and tell your story which is a hamilton quote who lives who dies who tells your story and it won't surprise me if brienne does there were no real supporting quotes for this though so it is speculation i regret to inform you
1: also so it is interesting to think about like how people present other people's stories right of those underneath them versus like oh how much do i boast when you write your own page but also like man when you think about it, Jamie has to write all these other people's, like, histories with his non-dominant hand. Yeah. It's hard. That's all.
0: No, absolutely agreed. It is, it's not easy at all. And now he has to write about dudes he doesn't even like. And now he's, like, just, yeah, with his non-dominant hand. And he's sitting here, like, scrolling past absolute legends. And A, his confidence is obviously shot to shit right now for many various reasons, if you've been listening to our podcast, you guys know. And, I don't know, poor Jamie. But his own page feels completely scarce. He's like, wow, not only am I missing a hand here, now I'm, like, reading that I haven't done fuck-all with my entire life. Life sucks.
1: Yes, absolutely, and... Uh what his says it's like what one third of what Barrison says and what we can just read it aloud <laughs> of Jamie's own page was scanned by comparison. Sir Jamie of House Lannister, okay great, his fucking name. Firstborn son of Lord Tywin and Lady Joanna of Casterly Rock served against the Kingswood Brotherhood as squire to Lord Sumner Craigall, knighted in his fifteenth year by Sir Arthur Dane of the Kingsguard, for valor in the field. Chosen for the King's Guard in his 15th year by King Ares II Targaryen. During the sack of King's Landing slew Ares II at the foot of the Iron Throne. (laughs) Thereafter known as the Kingslayer. This is like literally halfway through his like paragraph. Big total shift. Thereafter known as the Kingslayer. Pardoned for his crime by King Robert I Baratheon. Okay. To be fair, a lot of them actually have this pardon by Robert Baratheon in theirs. Served in the honor guard that brought his sister, the Lady Cersei Lannister, to King's Landing to wed King Robert. (laughs) Champion in the tourney held at King's Landing on the occasion of their wedding. Summed up like that, his life seemed a rather scant and mingy thing. Sir Barrison could have recorded a few of his other tourney victories at least. Yeah, but your entire family could have not
0: fired him and now you have his job and you were not the most king's guardius is all, right? Like, you got this just because you're the last one standing. So I'm just putting it out there, Jamie.
1: I also was, like, thinking about it in the context of what Barristan's resume says. For Barristan, it's, like, straight up won the tourney. And Jamie's like, but could you put, like, some of the individual matches that I won? He's like, could you put, you know, like, let's say, let's say mm-hmm. you got... A- I'm gonna try and make a sports analogy here, right? Let's oh, say, <laughs> you know, you got the whole championship, right? Barristan won the championship. He won the Super Bowl, and Jamie's like, "But could you talk about the single game that I won that was not the Super Bowl?" That's what he <laughs> wants. I think there's an obvious split, right? Like chosen for the King's Guard,
0: missed fifteenth year by King Aerys mm-hmm. II Targaryen. That is when the Gerald Hightower part ends, and the Barristan part starts with the Sack of King's Landing.
1: Yeah, and maybe it's Gerald Hightower's fault. Maybe he could have been better at keeping up with Jamie's shit and writing things down. But He was busy, though, guarding Lyanna Stark in a tower. That, and also maybe he didn't love writing.
0: Yeah, I mean, writing with your hands sucks, so <laughs> it hurts for some people. Thanks.
1: Yeah, so (laughs) he's just like, I don't know. I don't feel like doing this. Anyway, turns out, yeah, Gerald didn't add many more deeds either. There's nothing really about the Kingswood or about the Smiling Knight. And Jamie's like, I remember the Smiling Knight. He thinks that the Smiling Knight was a madman. He was cruelty and chivalry all piled together. And I'm like, isn't that the point of most knights, according to Jamie Lannister? And I guess, you know, he's going to talk about that in like two paragraphs, but whatever.
0: Well, I mean, yes and no, right? Like, we talked about it last time, but
1: Jamie says that's how all knights are, but what if they aren't? What if he's just projecting? Oh, he absolutely is, because, like, in two paragraphs, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. So he remembers his sword, who Arthur Dane had put so many notches through
0: the Smiling Knight's sword with his own sword, with Dawn, letting him fetch a new one even by the end of the battle. It's that white sword of yours I want. The robber knight told him as they resumed, though he was bleeding from a dozen wounds by then. Then you shall have it, sir, the sword of the morning replied, and made an end of it.
1: I just want to say that, like, between this and what Ned remembers of the Tower of Joy Exchange, like, what is it with Arthur? He's just, like, super into one-liners, Arthur Danis. Oh, yeah. Well, he's such a badass. I guess, I I can't, like, help but feel like he must have practiced these. <laughs> In the mirror? yeah. He's like, this is part of what it means to be a King's Guard, right? I gotta practice my uh, delivery. <laughs> <sighs> Jamie <laughs> thinks that, you know, these were simpler times, and men and their swords were made of finer steel. And he's like, mm, but was I just 15 and young? I
0: love that, though, especially with your Donald Noy comparison earlier in talking about John's mentors and taking his mentor's chambers in comparison to Jamie. Men and swords were made of finer steel. Mm. Kind of rings that Donald Noy comparison, right? With the Baratheon brothers.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point because I was like thinking about that a little with uh, Loris's description of Renly's armor later on. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not, it wasn't like that deep. I was like interesting because like Loras is all like, it was the best steel you could get. But yeah, Donald Noy like talking about the Baratheon Brothers, but also about the people in the Night's Watch in general. So, yeah,
0: the institution.
1: <sighs>
0: All of Jamie's heroes
1: are dead before
0: him: the Sword of the Morning, the Smiling Knight, the White Bull, Prince Lewin, Oswell Went with his black humor, Ernest John Derry, Simon Toyne his Kingswood Brotherhood, bluff old Summoner Craig Hall, and me—that boy I was. When did he die? I wonder. When I donned the white cloak, when I opened Ares's throat, that boy had wanted to be Sir Arthur Dane, but someplace along the way, he had become the smiling knight instead. I love that. It reminds me actually, off the, the cuff here, it reminds me of Theon, mm. in a way, with Smiler. Yes. But I do love that this discussion is such a precursor to Jamie getting his sword and giving Brienne, a sword, thinking I can still be glorious. I can be chivalric. I can still be close to Arthur Dane, because Arthur Dane wasn't perfect, as we've discussed before. Mm-hmm. And you know, Jamie could still be a knight, even in this light,
1: right? Absolutely, I like that callback. Yeah, and you know, coming back to it, like uh, what we were saying about the Knight's Watch, right? It's a different energy and vibe, and I think absolutely reverberates throughout the rest of Jamie's th- thoughts in this chapter. But John 13 in A Dance of Dragons, there's this line of the Night's Watch needed leaders with the wisdom of Maester Aemon, the learning of Samuel Tarly, the courage of Khorne Halfhand, the stubborn strength of the old bear, the compassion of Donal Noy. What it had instead was them. And he's referring to uh, Othul Yarwick, Bowen Marsh, and Salador, but of course also John, right? And you have Jamie kind of wondering, like, how the fuck did I get here and in charge? And he's also changed, right? Same as John jamie's wondering like when did that boy die and for jamie like that and john both of them that boy has died at similar ages around the ages of like Mm -hmm. 15 right as jamie notes Mm -hmm. but we don't actually know for either of them and for jamie he's still trying to figure out like was the man ever born john unsure you know he doesn't know because adolescence is hard and weird and Puberty's really difficult when you're facing down supernatural threat, I'm sure, but you know you also have this interesting comparison because like Jamie is romanticizing so many of these men, and they are long gone for a lot of them, right, because Jamie's older, whereas the people that John misses, not all of them like were dead so long ago, some of them he still kind of thinks might be alive, theoretically alive, like he doesn't know Amon's dead yet, Sam's obviously alive. It's all very fresh for him, but that same idea is like that the Night's Watch is no longer what it once was in terms of like those heroes that John grew up with, same as the heroes that Jamie grew up with all those years ago. Yeah, and it extremely feels like
0: the Night's Watch, especially because as we're about to chat, Jamie might be ignoring some warning signs mm-hmm. from these men as well, right? Just like John, and trying to change things in the quote-unquote watch, much like John as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, Osmond Kettleblack is the first to arrive to the meeting, and it's very awkward for both of them. We get a line. He gave Jamie a grin, as if they were old brothers in arms. Hmm. He, He tells Jamie that he looks much more like himself, all cleaned up, saying, Oh, I'd have known you at once. And Jamie's like, Yeah, I doubt that. Jamie had been bathed, shaved, and no longer looked like outlaw country. Uh, but he didn't look like Golden Man Jamie Lannister either. He's thinner, hollower, older. The five other brothers file in, and he commands them to stand by their seats, asking who guards the king. Sir Osney and Osfrid guard Tommen, Osmond's two very trustworthy brothers, and Garland Tyrell, another very trustworthy brother, is guarding him as well. So
1: I thought it was kind of funny. The today on Twitter, very coincidental, right? That Aziz of History of Westeros tweeted today, hidden joke example number, insert number 120398, because, you know, he's like making jokes. And he goes, the Tyrells and Littlefinger murdered Joffrey. When Jamie returns to King's Landing just after, he has the Kingsguard meet and has other, non-Kingsguard, watch over Tommen in the meantime. Who are these others? Two Kettleblacks, agents of Littlefinger, and a Tyrell. The Tyrell among the two most likely to have put the poison in Joffrey's cup. In fact, Jamie has almost no chance since there's also a Tyrell and a Kettleblack in the Kingsguard already, <laughs> both of whom try to pin it on innocent people.
0: Yeah, that's some framework we're definitely going to talk about being played with, especially for Loras mm-hmm. here, with the blaming the innocent. Guilty on accident, but actually innocent. I don't know. But uh, I, I think it's funny that History Westeros is doing their Valar re and they're doing a few chapters at a time. So they are actually catching us. We're kind of going neck and neck as we get through Jamie. And I think we're going to lap them soon. But it's like every week, I feel like we get real close. And all of a sudden, they're doing a chapter that we're on again. And I love it. We find a lot of really fun things like this.
1: Yeah, I thought that was just like a funny like thing to point out here in this moment. Um, Especially because like Jamie's actual brother, not his brothers in arms, right? His actual brother has in fact spent the past few books keeping Joffrey alive, despite Joffrey's best fucking efforts and, and impulses to get everyone to want to kill him, and then finally, you know, Joffrey's efforts pay off, and I guess to an extent, right? Because it's the Kingsguard, these are Jamie's new family, and yeah. it, I mean, like, let's be real, turns out all of Jaime's families are dysfunctional, including the Kingsguard. Yeah, a bit,
0: and... These guys are totally, like you said, no different. Boros and Marin sit to his right, and Osmond, Balin, and Loris sit to the left. An empty chair is left for Ares Oakhart that sits between Boros and Marin. The old Kingsguard and the new seem to be separated, and Jaime goes, What does it mean? Um, <laughs> what does it mean? I mean, obviously, it means the new Kingsguard are kind of trash and the old are dying. But (laughs) the usual, no, but I, I love that it's kind of meta that he's like, this probably means something, which is kind of what he does with everything in his
1: life, right? Like, hmm,
0: this must mean something.
1: But yeah, here he is, soldiering on. Yeah, he thinks about history and the times that the Kingsguard was divided because he's like, this is a risky, this is a risky group, especially like in the Dance of the Dragons. And we have this quote of... Was that something he needed to fear as well? It seemed queer to him to sit in the Lord Commander's seat where Barristan the Bold had sat for so many years, and even queerer to sit here crippled. God, don't tell him I said
0: it, but Brin and B. Fish's defecting to Aegon Theory all the time feels like it could happen now, and I don't know if that's just the quarantine talking, or like if it's real. Anyways, I do want to talk Dance of the Dragons. Patrons Stranger Tear, and Up have our four parts of the <laughs> Dance of the Dragons covering yep. everything in all published books from Fire and Blood to the World of Ice and Fire through the main books. Uh, and we got a ton of new info in Fire and Blood regarding Kristen Cole and Rhaenyra, right? Originally Rhaenyra, the heir, just to remind you guys, the yes. actual heir. Uh, Her sworn sword and shield was Kristen Cole. And he changes sides, becomes her stepmom, a scheming, mother-clucking, biatch, Alicent Hightower. I just can't stand her. And becomes her stepmom's sworn shield instead. Kristen just changes sides. And then he becomes the kingmaker. He convinces Aegon II to pursue the crown and crowns him with Aegon the Conqueror's crown. And there are further details in Fire and Blood that include like a spicy, zesty steamy, sexy take from Mushroom that might be ridiculous or a lie because literally everything Mushroom says is like 50-50 chance of being true, right? Like, absolutely down the middle. Could be true, could be bullshit. Mushroom claims, you know, Renira and Kristen had some sort of relationship and Kristen was spurned by Renira, and possibly even they banged it out. Uh, something happened between them and suddenly they stopped Hanging, and of course Rhaenyra ends up marrying Laner Valerian and then fathers Harwin Strong of Hall's children instead which we kind of know right like that's kind of a truth but I think it's canon I think we all know it's canon. Kristen goes on to beat Harwin up in a melee at a tourney and Laner's implied lover Joffrey Lawnmouth as well is kind of like gets the crap beaten out of him Basically revealing that, hey, I know what's up with you, Rhaenyra. I know your whole thing. The jig is up. I think this holds some really heavy Cersei parallels, maybe? I've spoken about a couple different things from the dance, like Rhaenyra being a direct kind of sandbox version of Cersei and Daenerys. But here, more than ever, it kind of makes you want to apply this to Jaime, even Mm -hmm. with his eventual split from Cersei. It's a big role of a Kingsguard choosing to follow another queen or king. So and obviously, like I said, Brennan B. Fish has a great series on Aegon Blackfire. I mean Aegon the Sixth, he's a Blackfire. And uh, you know, Barristan could defect. That could be really what this is about. I think that's a strong Kristen Cole parallel, but this right here feels V uh, internal internal struggle, Kristen Cole.
1: Yeah, I mean it could even be Jamie. You know, we don't even know how. You know, yeah, well, who knows what was real in the bad show or not, and especially with those Chris and Cole, lover parallels. Uh, but for now, you know, Jamie's thinking of his brothers as Tom and Seven, and surveys them. Marin and Blount, he thinks are adequate fights, but both are cruel and vapid. Uh, yes, yeah, Sir Maron sucks. Balin Swan is decent enough, acceptable enough background. Kingsguard cop character. And then we have Loras, who in quotes is supposedly all a knight should be. And then of course, Osmond Kettleblack,
0: the stranger to Jamie of the group. And I quote stranger. It's on purpose. Uh, You know, Nodicast is doing their live streams on Mondays talking about Catalan. They're wrapping up their Catalan handful of chapters. Turns out following one character's POV chapter at a time is pretty cool, Eliana. Just saying.
1: Interesting. Anyways.
0: Yeah, uh, apparently following POV chapters is pretty cool, I hear. But, I hear. Uh, Catalan in the chapters that Nauticast is discussing in A Clash of Kings... There is kind of the moment when she's praying, right? And she ignores the stranger. She talks about all the different aspects of the new gods. She sees the mother and the father and uh, she sees the maiden and all these characters she sees in her children and her dead husband and in Renly and Stannis and in Brienne even. But she doesn't see the stranger and she doesn't pray to the stranger. It's the one she avoids and it's the one that comes for her, right? Especially the night of Renly's death. And for Jamie, in this moment, Osmond is literally introduced as the stranger that he doesn't know and doesn't see. He's like, oh, it's this most strange person in the group to him. And of course, as we know, uh, Osmond is fucking Jamie's quote-unquote wife, right? His childhood wife, for all oh I God. know. So I think it's just such a very, like, apt. Osmond is, and here, as we're about to get into, Osmond is just a shitlord, lord. Right, like he's like laying around and he's just like, Mmm, yeah, I'm pretty fucking cool, Jamie Lannister. You're alright, but you don't shit gold to me, man. And Jamie's like, who are you? <laughs> no one fucking knows.
1: Yeah, well actually that is kind of what happens in this chapter. Like Jamie's like, no one fucking knows you, dude. Uh <laughs> yeah, and right now, like in that same vein, Jamie's imagining, like, what would Arthur Dane say of this group? And he imagines that Arthur Dane would be like, How is it that the King's Guard has fallen so low? Which I don't think sounds one liner enough for Arthur Dane, in my opinion, uh, most like. And it was my doing. I would have to answer. I opened the door and did nothing when the vermin began to crawl inside, which, wow, angst more Jamie Lannister. But also, like, <laughs> it, 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 it's a good line and it makes sense for Jamie because, like, he's very much in a way the fulcrum in which, like, the stories, genres, and the tropes turn right, like beginning of the book. Wow, he's what a king should look like, thinks John. Oh my God, he's sleeping with his twin sister. Like a few chapters <laughs> later, like all the way that he, he's like that big turning point in the beginning mm-hmm. of the book series, and then get, throws the little boy out the window. And then here we have him again. As I have said when we started Jamie's chapters, like he's one of the largest narrative arguments that George is making as we see him begin to change and think even these questions. And I do think it's really good to see this
0: for Jamie's character specifically, but I do want George to know that there are some men that don't need to be explored. For sure, and that's why he doesn't that's all. give the mountain a POV. Thank fucking god, but he sure does give Damon Targaryen his due. That's true. Anyways. Uh, so jamie decides that he's going to start this meeting he berates his men for letting joffrey die not even gonna touch that obviously because we laughed for 80 years about it last week but they touch on uh, it themselves in this chapter yeah they all just fucking roasted his ass and i'm roasting him to be honest in my head but uh he calls joffrey his sister's son in his head here and out loud and he separates himself from Joffrey a ton in this chapter he's totally compartmentalizing his kind of lack of role in Joffrey's life and the fact that he feels pretty much nothing about this kid's death he's like huh my first son that I feel nothing about because I wasn't allowed to actually see him as a son ever until this exact moment ish
1: yeah he's like "Hmm. I take no responsibility (laughs) pretty much (laughs) And I just squirted the little fucker, you know what I mean? Pretty much. Actually, though. And then none of the other kings are making a motion. There's no throat clearing, nothing. And he asks them, Alright, was well, it Tyrion who poisoned them? And they mostly just ignore his question except for Marin Trant. who's like, well, Tyrion filled up Joffrey's cup with wine, so you probably slipped it in then. Whatever, Marin. Jaime questions the wine being poisoned, and Blount says, The imp... Emptied it on the floor to get rid of the evidence, and Mirin agrees. He's like, Yeah, he must have known it was poisoned. Why else would he do that? Balin Swan frowns at this, saying, You know, there were many people on the dace, and more people were watching the doves than the wine cup.
0: Yeah, and I love that Balin here is slightly team Tyrion. Was not expecting that, right?
1: Like, he's like, I don't know. It could have not been Tyrion. Which does make sense because I, I think that Tyrion's one of the ones who helped him get this promotion, right? Yeah. So, uh, who backed him. So that might be part of it. But Balin also is presented as, like, you know, kind of a decent, even during Tyrion's trial. Jamie asks, alright, so, like, who was on the days, And Marin answers, him, the king's family... The brides, Meester Payson, the High Septon. Then Osmond jokes that you know the Septon was likely to poison him. He's too holy by half. I never liked the look of him. Ooh, that feels like a nice uh nod toward the future Sparrow
0: and a certain snake that's coming to King's Landing.
1: A snake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. Sometimes
0: we do that in my household. (laughs) So Loras busts in at the end, and he's like. It was Sansa, she fled, so she's guilty, and she had a motive, obviously, and she was spurned. And I like this whole, uh, just really interesting people that are being put forward here, right? Being investigated in this knives-out, whodunit going on. Uh, this meeting went from, like, a total departmental meeting to, like, a whodunit. And ignoring the families, especially, because, like, we know they have and will poison people, and one of them did the poisoning. They bring up people that are very suspect or related. Maester Pycelle's plot is strongly connected to poison, as we know. In A Game of Thrones with Jon Arryn's death and his advice on that in Council, A Clash of Kings, Tyrion steals poison from him for, you know, Cersei. And of course, Tyrion's trial just a bit ago in A Storm of Swords, he was brought in as a total professional. And then we have the High Septon, who is basically... Uh, bankrolled by Tyrion, he was instilled by Tyrion, and he was gifted a gorgeous crown by Tywin. Sansa, we know she didn't do this. She was a vehicle for it. And she's Tyrion's wife, immediate mentality there. And of course, poison's a woman's weapon, as we keep hearing, obviously, although it keeps being used by a certain unemployed man. And everyone is framing Sansa for this and other magical things like we talked about last episode in Jamie 7. So before we get through the chapter I did want to know where you stand on who knows what of the Tyrells does Loras know does Marjorie know I think Marjorie knows and I don't know we'll talk about that later but I think Loras could know and if so how could Loras stand there and freak out about Brienne killing Renly quote unquote when he knows his family just killed this king interesting just interesting
1: yeah, I've I've never really been sure if Loris knew or not just because Loris seems like he just seems so young compared to the rest of his family and the way that he's written and the way he's like acting here. Like I've often felt that Marjorie must have known, like she's drinking from the same cup. That's super yeah. risky if she doesn't know. And that Garland, you I've gone back and forth like did Garland was Garland the one who slipped the poison, right? Like it passes from he knows little and finger I think he did it. You think Loris did it? No, I mean Garland. I think Garland did it, I'm like slip the poison. Torn between if it's like Garland or Marjorie, right? Like obviously it goes from Littlefinger to Dantos, to Sansa's hair, to Elena, to Garland. And then I there I'm just like, did Garland slip it in and tell Marjorie, or did he give it to Marjorie to slip in, right? It's like only it's a it's a very slight difference, but like they're to me they're both in it. And I think it's just it's, it's just so funny. Like, obviously, they're all a part of this whole thing, but everyone keeps going, like, poison is a woman's weapon, which people came to seem to, like, <laughs> have completely thrown out the window for Tyrion's trial. And people are like, yeah, I don't know, poison anyone can do it now, but... Like, oh, I thought it was only
0: women who were able to do that pansy-ass bitch thing.
1: No, now it's like anyone can do it. But like, I mean, obviously, as we know, Littlefinger's actually the one who's been orchestrating, like, the big poison plots this whole time. Yeah, just like, just like him to
0: weaponize misogyny against us, I'm telling you. Yeah, convenient. <sighs> convenient. Jamie thinks this all seems sensible, that Tyrion might yet be innocent. Little projecting there, I think. Uh, And he thinks on Sansa, wondering how she would have gotten out of the castle, and maybe Varys was who he needed to talk to, because Varys knew everything in this castle. Varys fucking wishes. And he does talk to Varys, as we know. He returns to Bossy Pants via Tywin's lines ringing in his head. He's like, I'm ready to command now, because Tywin said, you say you're the Lord Commander, go do your duty.
1: Yeah, he also thinks this line of, like, these are not the brothers he had chosen, but the ones he had, and it makes me think again of John's thoughts on Bowen and Athel and Selador, but also, like, throwing it out there, to be honest, is this not just, like, how all siblings work in general? Like, does anyone actually choose their fucking blood relatives? Like, not really. In general, like, I I feel like I'm thinking, like, the Baratheon brothers must have felt the same. I'm sure, like, the Cleganes feel the same about each other, like... Mm-hmm. You you don't, like, somehow get to pick your blood relatives. Yeah, it's not currently an
0: offer they have for people. No. He tells them Tommen will sit the throne until he's old of age and that he won't die from poison. And then he tells Boros that he looks like he enjoys food, so he's going to enjoy all of Tommen's first bites of his food. This feels very Janos and John, mm. by the way. I got these vibes majorly, and I loved this little quote. Sir Osmond Kettleblack laughed aloud, and the Knight of Flowers smiled. But Sir Boros turned a deep beet red. I'm no food taster. I'm a Knight of the King's
1: Guard. Totally Janos Slint I would rather be a food taster. Okay, anyways. Same. <laughs> he tells Boros that Cersei actually enlightened me as to the time that you were going to give up Tommen. Do you remember this? Tyrion sellswords, Boros? And he thinks, you know what? Food is actually less threatening. And he tells him, it's all right, though. Tommen likes apple cakes. It's going to go great. Boros then is like,
0: whoa, you are a huge hypocrite. How can you come at me for not doing my job when you never did yours? You were never the king's guardiest of them all. Which is what you were supposed to be, and also you're a cripple, and you should be the food taster. Yes,
1: Jamie's so, like interesting. Yeah, Jamie
0: like is very controlled here. I don't know that I would be. Jamie smiles, and he's like, "I agree." Very Tyrion, right? Like you could totally tell they're brothers here, because again, how Tyrion handled Janos, and how Jamie is handling Blount. He agrees. He says, "I am unfit to guard the king." And he's like, take your sword out and we'll find out how unfit either of us are. And then there's this passage. At the end, one of us will be dead and the Kingsguard will be improved. He rose, or if you prefer, you may return to your duties. Bah! Sir Boros hawked up a glob of green phlegm, spat it at Jamie's feet and walked out, his sword still in its sheath. The man is craven and a good thing because Jamie was bluffing. Boros could totally probably fight him and knows he has to play the Lord Commander in front of Boros and the rest of the men.
1: Also fascinating that Boros spat it at Jaime's feet and not at Jaime. Mm-hmm. There's, some res- there's a mild amount of respect. But also, Jaime's move here. Is this not from the Princess Bride? Yes, I suppose. I don't know. It's, for me, it feels like it has the same energy. Jamie has this like line where he thinks they feared the man I was, the man I am, they pity. And I'm like again thinking of Jamie and John, both in different positions in terms of being Lord Commander, and John actually tries to make people see reason. He's like this is why we're doing the things we're doing. <laughs> why won't anyone fucking listen to me? Uh ex- Except for uh, Jano Slynn, he's not listening. He's like, all right, we're just gonna behead him. And Jamie, on the other hand, he's just like ordering people around because this is all he knows because he was raised as a Lannister. And like this idea of people needing to fear the man that he was for like all this to work, that's just a very Lannister thought process. We see it from Cersei during the Blackwater that, you know, those you rule must fear you. And we see how Tywin, of course, wielded that. And that's contrasted with John, right? He's very confused, but kind of gets a learning from Ned. Like, it's a mix of both, you know, gaining that respect, having them love you, the ones who serve you, and Jamie doesn't try to do that at all. Yeah, not at all. This is all
0: business here. Yeah. He's doing what needs to be done, it feels
1: like. Yeah. Especially when he, like, turns to the newcomer, Osmond. Osmond Kettleblack? Osmond Is Kettleback. that who
0: you're speaking about? In- indeed it is. <laughs> so... Some of you, some of you esteemed listeners, may already have heard of uh, a tinfoil theory that I really like and I've expanded on. It's a very silly tinfoil theory. A lot of people have posted it on the old Reddits and the LJs and the PJs and the CJs and the YTs and all the places you get your Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones esteemed content. And... This theory basically is the Kettleblacks, as we meet them, are members of House Went. It's tinfoil 101. The theory goes the Kettleblacks are the lost members mentioned in the tourney at Hall. There are totally cons against the theory. I know it's tinfoil, but some of this shit is so lined up that if it's an accident, it's like a hysterical accident, like completely ridiculous. And my read isn't that Oswald Went is alive. I know a lot of people like to theorize that. Uh, I don't think he's alive and walking around, but maybe his brother or his nephews sure are. So, like I've said, many people have gone into this before, but I think I've added some fun stuff to it. I don't think anyone's really brought some of this up. So, Elian, I'm hoping that maybe I can convince you today that there's something there. All right, all right, let's do this. All right. So the Kettlebacks don't land in these books until a Clash of Kings. They are sellswords in the capital, hired by Cersei to replace the Red Guard, Vylar's guard. If you remember, Tyrion sends a man named Vylar, the Red Guard captain, and some men to the Riverlands to escort Cleos back, bringing Rob's guard back as well. Later, he's called Tywin's captain of guards in the appendices, and his status is kind of unknown on whether he was killed by Edmir. Before the siege of River Run in feast, or if he was freed, but before a clash of kings and before any mention of the blacks, I want to talk about House Went because they were raised out of Hall. Lady Went yielded to Tywin because she had no men to defend it, no men, which is interesting because we learned that there are at least six people in House Went during the tourney at Hall. The father, the lord, was Walter Went. And in Brand to a Storm of Swords, we learned that the daughter of the castle was Queen of Love and Beauty at the tourney, and she had four brothers and an uncle to defend her. So her four brothers and her uncle, you guessed it, Oswell went. But all four sons of Harrenhal were defeated on the first day of the tourney. In A Game of Thrones, Tyrion Seven, we learn about Lady Went yielding Harrenhal. He Tyrion is discussing this with Kevin and Jamie's plot, as we know, is very much wrapped up in that framework of the tourney at Harrenhal hosted by the Wents. They do exist. Game of Thrones erasure is real, and we get a little detail about them in the world of Ice and Fire. A couple little details. The tourney was announced by Walter Went, Lord of Harrenhal, late in the year 280 AC. Not long after a visit from his younger brother, Sir Oswell went a Knight of the Kingsguard. We then learned that Lord Went was offering prizes thrice as large as those given at the Great Lannisport Tourney of 272 AC, which was hosted by Tywin Lannister. Of course, this tourney was kind of implied to be bankrolled by Tywin Lannister in the World of Ice and Fire, and we know from his stance at Duskendale on Aerys that he had a better king in mind in Rhaegar. He raised a hand to indicate Prince Rhaegar in a council in the Ares II chapter of the World of Ice and Fire. And also in Ares II's chapter in the World of Ice and Fire, we learned that Ares' loyalists would probably not have liked if Rhaegar had, uh, you know, chosen to go against his father. And that Ares might even disinherit him if he did so and name Viserys the heir. Later in the World of Ice and Fire, we learn about the Lothstons, which we talked about a little bit ago in Jamie 6, when uh, Jamie was having the shield of House Lothston with a bat on it just a couple episodes ago, and we learned that knights in service of the Lothstons were House Went. They were given Harrenhal as a reward for helping bring down the Lothstons, and they hold this seat to the day, but the World of Ice and Fire quotes, tragedy, has marked them. So, with this framework in mind around Jamie's chapters, I want to move forward with this back and forth conversation we got here in Jamie 8 A Storm of Swords. We won't get into it fully, we will just get into a little bit of it. I've
1: highlighted the most important bits, in my opinion, and Eliana, you are going to help me. Yes, I am. I've fought in turnies, melees, and battles throughout the Seven Kingdoms. I know of every hedge knight. Free rider and up jump squire of any skill who was ever presumed to break a lance in the lists. So, how is it that I have never heard of you, Sir Osmond? He had a great
0: wide smile on his face, did Sir Osmond, as if he and Jamie were old comrades in arms playing some jolly little game. I'm a soldier though, not no tourney knight. Where had you served before my sister found you? Here and there, my lord. I will ask once more. Where have you served? In the Stepstones. Some in the disputed lands. There's always fighting there. I rode with the gallant men. We fought for Lees and some for Tyrosh. How did you come by your knighthood? On a battlefield. Who knighted you? Sir Robert
1: Stone. He's dead now, my lord. To be sure. Sir Robert Stone might have been some bastard from the Vale, he supposed, selling his sword in the disputed lands. On the other hand, he might be no more than a name Sir Osmond cobbled together from a dead king in a castle wall. Interesting. We have a couple
0: things to pull from this. Uh, when the Cattle Blacks appear at the start of the War of the Five Kings, out of nowhere, Osmond and Oswell are the only ones with a real backstory. Osmond has fought on the battlefield, across the narrow sea with a company called the Gallant Men. Fought in the disputed lands, first for Lys, then Tyrosh. And we've talked a lot here at Girls Gone Canada about exiles across the Narrow Sea. And there are many, right? There's Blackfire supporters, Blackfires. Oberyn, after he killed Edgar Ironwood, for example, was sent over to Lys. Viserys and Daenerys, probably one of the biggest examples smuggled out by Willem Derry. And in Theon 1, spoilers for the Winds of Winter, this is a sample chapter George released, uh, there is a line from Stannis, nothing really plot spoiler, just saying, where he's talking about Daemon Blackfire, and he says, words are wind and the wind that blows exiles across the narrow sea seldom blows them back. By this logic, because we know Stannis is likely wrong here because two Targaryens are coming from across the narrow sea right into Westeros. One might be a Blackfire, and one is a real dragon. We'll see. But exiles come back by this logic, so maybe you're wrong, Stannis. People aren't hiding from the rebellion. We've seen this with John Connington, who himself went into exile. There's your biggest exile example. We also know that a bastard knight from the Vale knighted Osmond Kettleblack, and this very chapter, Jamie eight, is placed next to Sansa six in A Storm of Swords. We have this interesting exchange with Peter Baelish and Sansa on the Merling King. Their getaway ship. The chapter where Sansa learns that she is to act as a bastard from the Vale. A lane stone. Of course, Sansa's mother, Catelyn, also has some house-went ties. On her mother there, Minissa went, nay Tolly's line. The exact relation is unknown. Oswell, come up here and let the Lady Sansa have a look at you. The old man appeared a few moments later, grinning and bowing.
1: Sansa eyed him uncertainly. What am I supposed to see?
0: Do you know him? asked Peter. No. Look closer.
1: She studied the old man's lined, wind-burnt face, hooked nose, white hair, and huge, knuckly hands. There was something familiar about him, yet Sansa had to shake her head. I don't. I never saw Oswald before I got into his boat, I'm certain.
0: Oswell grinned, showing a mouth of crooked teeth. No, but Milady
1: might have met my three sons. It was the three sons and that smile too. Kettle black, Sans eyes went wide. You're a kettle black. Hmm. 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 Interesting.
0: I like that passage because if this is a thing, George is telling us to draw our eyes to the page. Look closer, Littlefinger says. Uh, just a fun chapter, especially because it comes directly after Jamie eight. These chapters are very much next to each other. Uh, Sansa six is the chapter where she becomes a lane stone at the end, and in all likelihood, Walter Went, the Lord of Harrenhal at the time, is likely dead now. Oswell Went, I do not think, is alive. Oswell, Osmond, Osford, and Osney Cuddleblack, in my opinion, would likely be the four unnamed brothers from the tournament with maybe the eldest brother of these four brothers parading as Oswald to honor his uncle. But here's where it's interesting. It seems that each of these men actually have different motivations. Our friend Aziz from History of Westeros, as we discussed earlier, said that two of them were employed by Littlefinger, but I don't know if I agree with that. Oswell has been in Littlefinger's employ for a while that we learn. A good snatch if he is a went, especially because Liza is a Tully. Part went, and eventually Sansa landing in the veil. Osmond is Cersei's main brother that she likes to fuck of the Kettleblacks, and seems to be sizing Jaime up during all of this. But Cersei has also betted Osni, who's the brother that sells her out in Feast after he's tortured by the Sparrow. Osford and Osmond get thrown in a cell. Kevin plans two options for them. They either get to plea innocent and fight Sir Robert Strong and likely die, or go to the wall guilty. Interestingly enough, there's another little parallel with Cersei, who's hooking up with these very strong men. Eh?
1: Eh? 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 You see what I did there? Yes, because I do.
0: If these guys are wents, these dark-haired, bulky, muscly men are wents secretly. And they're hooking up with a queen who, uh, you know, is seeking more power in a throne. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know.
1: Just, Is
0: this just from the hall. Yeah, from Harrenhal, exactly. So, truth be told, the biggest reveal we would likely see from these options, and you might find surprise at this, would be in Sansa's plot. I've mentioned before, pretty minor theory that Sansa's reveal to the Vale lords will actually mirror Catalan five in A Game of Thrones. You in the corner, she said to an older man she had not noticed until now. Is that the black bat of Hall I see embroidered on your surcoat,
1: sir? The man got to his feet. It is my lady.
0: And his lady went a true and honest friend to my father, Lord hoster Tolly of Riverrun. She
1: is, the man replied stoutly.
0: It would be such a great fit for this theory, if it's more than tinfoil, if the reveal from Saz's plot in the Vale came, that the bastard knight Robert Stone that knighted the Kettle Black men really was just that they were probably not knighted by some fake man in the Vale, or if they were, it was their eldest brother. And hey, it might be just ton- fun tinfoil, but it's a fun exploration of the text, so I don't really think you get to be the went calling the Kettle Black in this situation, you know?
1: Yeah, I think I can see a lot of it, and like you said, it would be really interesting if it came through in Sansa's plot, especially like this I was trying to like see if there are any Roberts like did he hesitate right and was it was a different Robert. Yes, it's Sir Robert da 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 Stone. Yeah. Like there I think there was a Robert somewhere and he's like wait wait.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's another good thought though. Um and I mean there are so in retrospect if this was bankrolled by Tywin, the whole turn at Hall was bankrolled by Tywin, that means that the Wents have been in cahoots with the Lannisters before for power. So having two of these brothers kind of like show up and try to get Cersei power, you know, or power through Cersei, uh, it makes sense. You know, it's not, they don't have to be power players. They don't have to all be good, but it does seem that Littlefinger having someone in his employ that could or could not be. And don't get me wrong, there's cons to this theory. Like, Oswell does not speak like someone who's highborn. So at first I used to think maybe it could be like Lord Walter went and three of the brothers and maybe one died or something. And I'm like, no, it fits better if it's the brothers as all four. It really does. So it's an idea. But it, it, like I said, they... They seem like they might not be high born and yada yada, but at the same time the people that take Hall aren't always high born, they like just get it, obviously as reflective of Peter Baelish. And the irony that Peter Baelish thinks he has all these men that are in his employ, like Oswell, who may or may not be a went. Peter has Oswell's home. What if Sansa just promises him he could have his home back?
1: Yeah, and it's like I have more uh license to do this than Peter Baelish, who's like never been there and be like, I oh, don't know, dude, my grandfather's Hosser Tully. My other grandmother is Minisa Wet. I have the blood. Yeah. And she has black leather wings. <laughs> yeah, so I can see it. Interesting.
0: Okay, well, I'm glad we leveled. That was my big uh performance, everyone. Rate review. Subscribe.
1: Oh my god. Yeah, thank you. That was my for YouTube video to um, Girls Gone <laughs> Cannon. Um, <laughs> that was the episode? No. <sighs> yeah, in in this episode, Jamie's actually wondering what Cersei was thinking when she gave Osmond a cloak, but is at least relieved that he knows how to use a sword and shield. He lets him leave and calls Sir Mirren up. He's like, So, I heard you're into beating little girls. <laughs> and he's like, Alright, Marin, show me in the white book where in our vows it says to beat Sansa Stark. Where is that in our job description? And Marin's like, Well, I swore to obey his grace. And Jamie's like, Alright, well, now you answer only to me. Tywin and Cersei, no one else. And Marin questions obeying the king. And Jamie's like, Uh, first of all, your boss is literally eight fucking years old. And our duty is to protect him, including from himself. This is a big change in the Kingsguard.
0: I think people don't really notice right away. Uh, before, Jamie lived in this world where he must ignore what's happening. The men continued that while he was gone. Obviously, they listened to Joffrey. But now that Jamie's back, he's actually trying to enact this change. And I think that's pretty big that... Jamie does work to enact small changes and affect small changes as much as he can. And this is one of them.
1: Yeah, it's like John trying to enact changes, but it's interesting because Jamie's doing it a little more subtly, right? And is framing it as uh, protecting the king from himself. But it it is like a change in the way things were done, which is like you follow the king unquestioningly and... So, yeah, he's like, it's protecting the king from himself, but also, you know, not just protecting everyone else from the king, which is what happened with Jamie, but also, Marin Trant is trash, Sir Meryn trash is what I have for everyone today.
0: And I don't want to play devil's advocate now that I just praised Jamie, like, just a few seconds ago. And I guess, like, as an auntie, no, I'm just kidding. I just praised him a second ago, but I also do want to point out that, like, yes, Jamie is enacting this change, but he's still enacting this change and saying, me, my dad, and Cersei are in charge. And in A Feast for Crows, he goes to the Riverlands and he enacts change, but... He says, me and Cersei are in charge. (laughs) Like, it's the Lannister name that he is enacting it in. So it's like, Jamie, you're doing good things, or you have a good motivation for once to do something, but you're still doing it for the incorrect reason. Which he doesn't know any other reason at this point, but...
1: Yeah, I mean, like, Tywin and Cersei have been his guiding star for a long time, and also he hasn't started thinking completely, like, wait, what if I don't think that Tywin and Cersei are right about everything yet? He's, like, not there yet. That's, like, end of Feast for Crows. Yeah, it takes a while to get there, and that's part of the
0: journey. Jamie turns it into terms that even an idiot... Like Marin Trant could understand. If Tommen wants you to saddle his horse, cool. If he wants to kill his horse, come talk to me. Man, too little too late on that Joff train there. You can tell he's
1: super overcompensating for Tommen. But yeah, I, I think you're right. And also, like, Jamie straight up wasn't there for any of Joffrey's raid, Yeah, at all. He was like, you in don't know self. what it was like. That's the yeah, thing. He's is, like, yes, it was-
0: you can be pissed at these men for beating Sansa, because I am too. But at the same time, you weren't there.
1: Yeah, but I, th- I do think Jamie would have been able to push back on Joffrey. I mean, Tywin, Tywin yes. was able to do it. And obviously, as we see, Joffrey listens to good fighting men like Sandor. He's like, oh, Sandor's cool. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, he was locked up in a cell.
0: Yeah. He turns to Balin Swan. He congratulates him on his honor. And he's like, you're the least shitty of all these guys. Uh, and then he Congrats. asks him some real questions. He's like, "Except for your brother Donal, Donal rode with Renly. Then he rode with Stannis, and uh, your father didn't even take a side. So what gives, Balin?" And Balin's like, "Hey, Dad's too old to fight." And Donal yielded and pledged to Joffrey, like many other hostages, and that was a very notable moment. Many other hostages. Uh, JB insinuates Donal fell down the king tree. And hit every branch except for Stark and Greyjoy on the way down, and he wonders where exactly Donald's loyalty lies. And Balin is like, Donald is loyal to Tommen, but Jamie's like, it's not Donald I'm worried about, it's you. What will you do if Donald comes face to face with you in the throne room with your king between the two of you? What would you do?
1: Maybe project, Jamie? Saying maybe that's what you'll do? like, want to tell Jamie, like, it's okay, it's okay. I read Fire and Blood, we saw this happen all the time, and Bale and Swan will probably just, like, do what everyone else in Fire and Blood did, right? (laughs) Stay loyal, then have a really sad moment between him and his brothers on the other side, then they die together. I read it, you know? I get it. <laughs> and Balan backs me up. Balan Swan is also like, I too, Red Fire and Blood, Jamie Lannister, that's never going to happen. And Jamie's like, But it could, because it happened to me. And Balan's like, On my sword, on my honor, on my father's name, I swear, I shall not do as you did. <laughs> Jamie laughed. Good. Return to your duties and tell Sir
0: Donald to add a weather vane to his shield. Ho, 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 Get up, fair weather. Burn. And now, uh. Jamie has to deal with the Knight of Flowers himself, Loris Tyrell. Slim as a sword, lithe and fit, Sir Loris Tyrell wore a snowy linen tunic and white wool breeches with a gold belt around his waist and a gold rose clasping his fine silk cloak. His hair was a soft brown tumble, and his eyes were brown as well and bright with insolence. He thinks this is a tourney, and his tilt has just been called while well, you're operating it that way. <laughs> Kinda. And Jamie then- pulls his dick out on the table and he's like, Yes, Loris, you're hot shit, but I was hotter, younger, and dumber shit before you were at age 15 on the king's card.
1: <laughs> I was better than you, Sir Loris. I was bigger, I was stronger, and I was quicker. And now you're older, the boy
0: said, my lord.
1: He yeah, had to laugh. This is too absurd. Tyrion would mock me unmercifully if he could hear me now compare Cox with this green boy. Older and wiser, sir, you should learn from me. As you learned from Sir Boros and Sir Marin, that arrow hit too
0: close to the mark.
1: I learned from the white bull and embarrassing the bold. Jamie snapped. I learned from Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, who could have slain all five of you with his left hand while he was taking a piss with the right. I learned from Prince Lewin of Dord and Sir Oswald Went and Sir Jonathan Derry, good men every one. Dead men every one. He's me, Jamie realized only. I'm speaking to myself, as I was, all cocksure arrogance and empty chivalry. This is what it does to you to be too good, too young. <laughs> I know that the line's not written that way, but I don't know why it just felt right to deliver it that way. Um, it is though. Like Lore- I mean, yeah, Loras's line just then though kind of reminds me of, goddamn it, a-, a thing Jorah Mormont says about Rhaegar to Danny. Valiantly, nobly died. Yeah, yeah, dude, fucking dies.
0: Uh, Jamie does try a different approach. He's like, all right. How do I reach these kids?
1: Uh, he asks, <laughs> How do I connect the youths? <laughs> How do I reach these kids?
0: Uh, he asks who wore Renly's armor on the Blackwater. And Loris is all sullen, and he's like, It was garland. Renly's tall and broad, and I don't fit his armor. And then he's like, Littlefinger suggested it. He thought it would frighten Stannis' men, and it did. Uh, Jamie asks, which also... That's such like a big hint of what's really happening in King's Landing right there. Like Littlefinger suggested it. Interesting. The Tyrells listen to Littlefinger. Like th- that's a hint, Jamie. Right there. But Jamie is so concerned with other things in this yeah. meeting and trying to take back his Lord Commandership and get a hold on his crew and everything is uncertain and Tywin and Cersei both hate him and his life's in shambles, right? And he's really confused about his sexual and heart attraction to Brienne. His heart's attraction. Um, so these little clues like Littlefinger yeah. suggested it are just going by the wayside much like John, right, with the things that were suggested to him or with, uh, you know, like Bowen Marsh and everyone saying things to him and him just going,
1: well, you guys should just kill me. Yeah, at least Jamie wasn't telling everyone, you should just kill me. <laughs> at least he was yeah, not God. doing that. <laughs> That's what happens when you're 30 years old. You know, you're like, wait, wait, (laughs) hold on. Back up.
0: Jamie asks what he did with Renly, and Loris says he buried him with his own hands in a place that Renly had showed him when he squired at Storm's End. Uh, Loris declares he will defend King Tommen with all of his strength, but he will never betray Renly by word or deed. He was the king that should have been. He was the best of them.
1: Yeah, and Jamie actually notes that the arrogance fled from Loris when he spoke of Renly, and then he knows that Loris is speaking the truth of what he thinks, and that the boy was still good. Proud. But good. And you know, I just like want to say, like, to be fair, you know, this is a story very much about young people losing people that they loved too early. We started off, right, in the Game of Thrones with the Stark daughters and their dad, Ned, being killed Right in front of them. We see it with Jon and Egret dying in his arms, and we see it with Daenerys and Drogo, which I think is maybe one of the more apt comparisons, considering that there are a lot of ways in which it's a problematic relationship, just as, you know, Nick... Uh, Fox a few weeks ago brought out uh, brought up that there might be problematic circumstances surrounding Renly and Loris and their relationship. And we don't have Loris's POV in this story. And to be honest, it's actually one of the POVs I do wish we had. There are quite a few on my list. Um, and in many ways, I think, though, through the other characters in the story, we already know what's going on with loris's perspective right because like what happened to jamie when he was loris's age was disillusioning realizing like oh shit i didn't actually get this job on merit i mean like i'm sure loris knows that right he knows what his family's scheming but like what happened to loris was as heartbreaking for him you know for his first love whether or not it's problematic like from his perspective that was his first love as it was for john and Daenerys, and like we're i i'm you know, we propose different lenses through which to read the story, and I'm gonna put forth this one for Loras.
0: That is something really great to look at is Loras' disillusionment changing as well. Um, no matter what the situation was, if he was groomed by Renly or not. Like Loras was good at fighting. That's what he's good at, just like Jamie. And that heartbreak, um it, it almost makes me wonder I like the idea of Loris not knowing all of his family's machinations in a way. It reminds me of Jamie a lot in that way. Mm. Jamie never is in on the scheming. Tyrion always has a scheme. Cersei always has a scheme. Tywin always has a scheme. And Jamie is always the last one to know about their schemes and the first one affected by them a lot of times, right? Yeah. Uh, obviously, not counting some of the Tyrion stuff and Taisha, of course, in her own right. It's just interesting because it does feel like Jaime is left out of it because he has that dual uh, loyalty, right? Like, yes, above everything, he has always put his family, Cersei, uh, everyone first. He's always tried to put his family first, even with
1: the Kingsguard ship. But they come first. Yeah, and lo- like it seems like no one reminded Jaime during his time there at the Kingsguard. They told him to just shut up and obey. But no one tried okay. to remind him. When, when they were reminding him, like, your job as a Kingsguard is to just do what you're told. There's a reason why he was more drawn to his family. It's because they weren't burning people alive at that time. I mean, instead his dad <laughs> was drowning people alive. But, you know, you know, yeah. same difference. Maybe Jamie wasn't, like, willing to think that deeply about it. And he didn't see it directly in front of his own eyes, right? It wasn't visceral yeah. for him the way that Ares's was. And it doesn't make it better, but, like... Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Yes, I do.
0: Jamie asks Loris to uh, take a second, examine the facts. Let's look at the elephant in the room, Loris. Let's just change the subject. Let's talk about <laughs> let's Brienne. Change
1: the subject. Talk about the He's girl that's like, on my I mind. Reach this kid at all. <laughs> He's like, I want to talk about my crush. Yes,
0: and Loris immediately is like, No, fuck her. She pulled tricks in the melee to win. And become a Kingsguard member for Redly. and Jamie's like, interesting. Then you should be buddies because I know another knight who's fond of cheating, Loras, in the hands tourney. Jamie asks, so what? What trickery did Brienne use? And Loras is like, a, de, de, um, well, you see, and that's because Brienne didn't actually use trickery. It's just like she was a woman and. She was in armor, and he didn't know that it was Brienne in there, and she fought fair, square, and she didn't reveal herself, and she beat his ass. Anyways, we won't go into it, but...
1: His grace put a rainbow cloak around her shoulders, and she killed him, or let him die. Brienne is not a doctor, okay? Just like Jamie, (laughs) Not a doctor. I I don't know what he would have done if Joffrey were there again.
0: Not. And of course, this is coming up in Jamie's chapter, right? She killed him or let him die. That's one of the biggest things between their characters that they do share is their king dying on their watch. And Loras then comes out and claims, "Well, maybe all of the guard was conspiring," which is outrageous. King's guard conspiring against their king. I I've never... never heard of that happening in A Song of Ice and Fire, especially not with Went. Anyways, um. Jamie remarks, there's a big difference between these situations. And he's like, how could you have let Joffrey die? Were you a part of it? But Loras, pay attention, gets stiff at this and he puffs himself up and he gets all like scowly. And then Jamie ignores that and starts defending Brienne instead. Again, like I said earlier, this seems like a hint that maybe Loras does know. He got stiff being kind of like half- Uh, called a killer, right? He kind of was all, what do you mean I killed her? What do you mean the time I killed her? What? What? Makes you think maybe Loris knew. Jamie is distracted by Brienne, worried about other things.
1: Yeah, I think that can go, it can be read either either way, way, yeah. Like, either Loris knew, I wouldn't be surprised if he did, but at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't included in it because of how much, like, Jamie he is, right? He's younger, clearly impulsive. Like, yeah. and he ends up giving up secrets in a sec he, g- he gives up Garland Tyrell's secret, maybe his family's like I don't know, I don't know if we can trust Loras with secrets right now, everyone mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know I also want to point out, I noticed this person's name, Sir Parman and I just want to say his name reminds me of Parmesan and that's it, that's the, that's the note, Jamie says Brienne grieves for Renly the same as Loris does and Jamie comments, you know you know what's really different about when you kill a king and you mean to do it versus when you didn't? She's like, I actually never grieved for Ares, would you believe? <laughs> <laughs> and then nope. he calls Brienne loyal, stubborn, ugly, and then she swore to bring him safely to King's Landing, and here I am, right before you, me, Jamie Lannister. <laughs> Golden hand the just
0: almost... He shakes his head finally and he's like, Loras, show me how you'd fight a shadow. And Loris is like, immediately returns right to that same outlook that we discussed earlier with Sansa. Catelyn and Brienne fled, which makes them guilty. Interesting, because the Tyrells mm-hmm. stayed, but they're not guilty. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's framed really well in this lens. The chapter starts with Loras claiming Sansa's guilty. He stiffens up when it's kind of jokingly implied by Jamie he was complicit in Joffrey's death for completely different reasons. And then it leads to him blaming Brienne and Catelyn. But at the end of this chapter here, Loras basically unravels and admits, yes you're right, it couldn't have been Brienne. I kind of knew all along, now that we bring it up, it probably wasn't Brienne. And he kind of just backs off of it and backpedals at the end a little because of Jamie talking him down. And I think it's really interesting in looking at that examination of whether Loris knew or not that these are just two events, same chapter that start and end with that.
1: Yeah, that's true. I also like that Jamie's questioning Loris's account because Loris is like, okay, as you said, you know, well, why would they run if they weren't guilty, especially against Jamie's own sense of, you know, like, he actually did break his vows and kill his king, <laughs> as everyone has pointed out. And that's the thing, right? Jamie's like, you know, not only did I not grieve for Ares, he doesn't say this, right? But it's, we know from Jamie's chapters, Jamie didn't run from it. Like, they just found him there standing over Ares, and he's like, Yeah, I fucking did it! I'm gonna go sit in the pointy chair now while I wait for everyone to recoup and then come back. Because, <laughs> whatever, it doesn't even matter anymore.
0: right?" He As- didn't even wear his white armor, which is something that he... Calls yeah, out true. to earlier when he's talking to Balin Swan, like, "What would you do in your white cloak?" He didn't even
1: wear the armor. Yeah, like Jamie, like knew what he was doing. He didn't run <laughs> from it at all. He's like, "Yeah, there's no fucking point, right?" And so, and then coming back again to the other lens of looking at Loras through through the perspectives of other characters especially Daenerys like I can see how Loras would think it's easier to blame Brienne and that's part of the story right like the narratives and stories we tell ourselves to make the world simpler easier to understand black and white versus grey and like cause even now right people are still having discussions like who's at fault for Drogo's death is it Miri Mazdor and like her tent of shadows which now I'm gonna just throw this out there and leave it uh, Renly's Tent of Shadows, throwing it out there. Uh, I don't think it's just Neri, right? That's why people are having discussions. Mm-hmm. Drogo smearing fucking mud all over his wound instead of using the poultice. Smearing dirt all over himself. You know, maybe, maybe that's what you do to avoid disease. I don't know, we're in a pandemic. Daenerys smothering her <laughs> beloved with a pillow after realizing that maybe you cannot call the dead back to life even though, you know, it turns out maybe you can, as we find out in this book. Whatever. Not saying at all that Loras, I'm I'm not saying at all that Loras is to blame, but like that there's an absolute need that happens in grief, right? Like mm-hmm. that's part of that process where you find someone or something to blame as Daenerys does for Drogo. And I think that's a very human emotion for Loras. It's hard. He's so young, right? He's so mm-hmm. immature. And it's, it's different people deal with that in different ways right like it contrasts with john right and even with jamie like these are people who are a little different jamie kind of externalizes things until now john's someone who internalizes blame very very easily he's like oh it wasn't my arrow but it basically should have been like he knows it's not that but he blames himself and thinks i killed egret right and he deals with it as self-hate and punishment because just having somewhere to direct that blame whether it's yourself or someone else just makes it easier to deal with
0: yeah, and I mean, that's the first time John's... I mean, John's never been allowed to externalize blame, yeah. right? Uh, and Jamie kind of has been. That's been his whole life, being able to. And we see that with a lot of characters. You look at Sansa when she is a little younger in the story, and she blames Lady's death on everyone, right? Uh, she blames it on Arya. She's like, it's all Arya's fault. Mm-hmm. Joffrey would never have done it. Joffrey would never have done it. But then in the end... You come to the same conclusion, just like Loris did. Loris came to the conclusion, wow. It wasn't? Really? Oh, wow. And then he realizes in horror what he's done. Because he starts to think on this night. And he's like, well, the gorget was cut through with one clean stroke. Brienne's really strong, freakishly, but she couldn't do that. That's fine steel. It's super nice steel. And if she couldn't cut through the steel, how could a shadow... Magic. Jamie is like, great questions. Go ask Brienne these. You can either release her, accuse her, but I'm asking you, on your honor as a knight, judge her fairly.
1: I'm going to throw it out there. Jamie's asking Loris Tyrell to do with Brienne what Catelyn Stark did to Jamie. She came in, she accused, heared out his truth. It was a horrible truth, but the truth, and then judged or released him, but Catelyn, you know, somehow did both. Yeah, that's a good him on the inside, then released him.
0: Oh, that's a great kind of parallel in a way. Jamie is kind of asking him, please. You know, justice. Mercy.
1: Yeah. He's experienced it now.
0: Loris makes to leave, but it turns out he kind of likes talking to his new old boss and tells him Renly thought Brienne was absurd in woman's mail, pretending to be a knight, and Jamie says, well, if he'd seen her in pink satin and mirish lace, he wouldn't have complained.
1: I asked him why he kept her close, if he thought her so grotesque. He said that all his other knights wanted things of him, castles, or honors, or riches. But all that Brienne wanted was to die for him. When I saw him all bloody, with her fled, and the three of them unharmed... If she's innocent, then Robard and Emin. He could not seem to say the words. Jamie had not stopped to consider that aspect of it. I would have done the same, sir. The lie came easy, but Sir
0: Loris seemed grateful for it. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, Jamie, that was very chivalrously done. It was. Sweet boy. Sweet boy, that was very
1: kindly done to help Loris. His emotional intelligence is increasing, right? Because, like,. He can tell, because Loris is rejecting the idea that he and Jamie at the beginning were alike at all, because he's like, you're old! I'm young! and Yeah. But in this Calm moment... Common ground! Exactly, he's like, all he needs right now, as Jamie was saying, you know, we're alike, is for Jamie to actually meet him here and be like him. And I don't know, is this what being a brother is like? I don't know. What siblings... Um, I mean, a brother of the Kingsguard, and
0: that's the rough part, is that, like, we see Jamie excelling at this, just like we see John actually doing Mm. a great job, not a great job by his men's standards, obviously, but doing a good job, in our opinion, on the watch, and for it to be
1: kind of taken away from them. He does a great job when it's the personal things, right? And he's being a brother to, like, Pip, Gren, Sam, and stuff, um... I also want to throw out another line here as another way to look at this um, from Sansa 1 in Feast. If a lie was kindly meant, there is no harm in it. Obviously different context there, but.
0: I also was thinking a lot about the line when she thinks about Eleanor and the rest of the Tyrell girls Mm -hmm. uh, during Storm when she thinks they are young, they've never seen war, they don't know what it's like they're just young girls you know their heads are full of songs like mine once was and that's how Jamie really enters this chapter but then like you said it closes out with that if a lie was kindly meant there's no harm in it and yeah. it's not the last time Jamie thinks this he reflects on this for a while after Loras leaves thinking that even even after these brothers didn't save Joffrey or protect him he didn't think about killing these guys until recently right he thinks what am i if i do not lift the hand i have left to avenge my own blood and seed
1: what am Hmm. i if not easily bought into the myths of toxic masculinity that i need to express (laughs) my anger through violence all the time especially now that i can no longer but anyway this is coming for the guy who like two a book ago was like balls out Charging at Rob Stark, cutting through 20 men, like, I'm out it! I got this! I don't got this. Uh, yeah, that right there is called character development, wow. Eliana. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. We'll come back to Loris another time. <laughs> he
0: thinks about killing Boros just to get rid of him at least, and looks at his stuff thinking, man, I need to cover this. He thinks maybe he'll get a golden hand. So just. One that Cersei would like, to stroke her hair, hold her close with. Then he thinks his hand could wait, though. There were other things to tend to first. There were other debts to pay. Then yeah, you so know about that.
1: Save the accessories for later. Pay off your house loan to Tom Nook first. Pay off oh, your fuck inclines that. and Completely bridges. The opposite. I, I'm torn because I'm like, I want more rooms to put all my things in. so hard (gasps) Uh, so many vows they make you swear and swear so many bells they make
0: you dig and dig they do oh that was Jamie
1: Eight, a storm of swords I feel like that was heavy it was heavy it's actually like a kind of short chapter but here we are with like a two hour episode (laughs) fuck Uh, yeah but I'm glad I think we covered a
0: lot and Next week uh, is, of course, a very good chapter, right? We get a sword. Yes. Next week, sword. Sword! Like you said, if we want to yell certain words or uh, talk about Stoneheart framework, it begins yes. next chapter for sure. Even stronger than the Clash Catalan chapters. So
1: I'm ready for that. I'm excited for next week. Yeah, definitely. And that'll close out, yeah, as you said, our Storm chapters and we transition into Feast's. So much, so much to discuss. Yes, and of course, you know, if you want to keep up with whenever those chapters come out or any other things like Chloe making comments about Macbeth <laughs> on Twitter, Awful. you can follow us on social media. Find us at Girls Gone Cannon, Canon C A N O N on Twitter, or maybe you have thoughts. We have actually a couple other emails that we'll bring in the next few weeks that people have sent uh, from girlsgonecanon at gmail.com.
0: Yeah, and make sure that you are subscribed to us on your podcast platform to keep an eye out for when episodes drop. We are on all the major platforms and some minor and in-between platforms as well, like Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, where we're hosted, Acast, Stitcher,
1: you name it, we're there. Yes, and of course, patrons, $5 and up on Patreon dot com slash girls gone canon uh, get special episodes every month. Last month we talked about Tyrosh, which I'm sure you realize we mentioned this episode and quite a bit about Dario. You know, did you know there was a Dario day recently, everyone? It was, I did. It It was great on Twitter. But, you know, we talked in depth about Tyrosh and Dario's role in the story. And this month, though, for our His Drug Materials fans, we will be talking about the novella once upon a time in the north
0: yeah i'm very very excited if you guys are reading along with us with his dark materials we will have a subtle knife episode out soon as well so stay tuned for that as always thanks again for listening i've been one of your hosts chloe and i've been another one of your hosts eliana
1: see you next week all bye